section that we'll be looking at, but we'll read verses 1 through 35 this morning. And just uh, last week, we considered the triumphal entry of Jesus, celebrating Palm Sunday as he rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem with this large crowd that was shouting, Hosanna in the highest, and they were ready to crown him as their king, we acknowledged. They viewed him as the Messiah, the promised Savior, but they limited his reign to a, a physical throne. Uh, they limited his salvation to political freedom, not what Jesus came to do, which was to give them freedom from their sin. Jesus came to accomplish much more. The entrance of the king was merely the setup for a swift departure on the cross. Jesus did indeed triumph, but it was through death upon a cross. And so as our king, Jesus defeats all his and our enemies. That's one of the answers that our catechism gives. He defeats all his and our enemies, and the greatest of those is sin, and it's our sin that was defeated upon the cross and the misery that comes because of our sin. So in order to be forgiven, satisfaction for the penalty of sin had to be made. Jesus was the perfect lamb whose sacrifice was satisfactory once and for all what we think about when we reflect upon the cross. We sometimes hear a lot about the gore, and we talked about that last week in the afternoon service. The, the cross is oftentimes preached as this bloody, gory scene, and, and it was indeed that, but, but the Gospels don't relish in that aspect of it. It doesn't, it doesn't elaborate upon the pain that Jesus endured. It's, it's very straightforward and simply stated. But what is emphasized is the redeeming aspects of his death, right? What he actually, no more bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. He was the last sacrificial lamb. And so the temple curtain was, uh, the temple curtain was separated, uh, or which separated the most holy place from the inner court was torn from top to bottom. Now anyone who uh, wanted to go to God could have free access to him through faith in Christ. No longer, he is, he is that mediator between us and God. It's Christ alone. But that wasn't all. In order to prove his redemptive power and to show that indeed sin and death had been defeated, the king had to return. And, and that's what he did. Jesus rose again from the dead. So this morning, we will read about the events of the resurrection uh, but I want to focus most of our time upon a particular encounter that a couple of disciples had with the risen king. I want to focus on that encounter more than anything else, but we'll reflect upon all of the verses 1 through 35 here as we read. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for this season of just opportunity to reflect upon what is truly central in your word, the death and resurrection of our King. Lord, help us to understand that in a new way this morning. Help it to stir up in us just an ongoing love and a desire to know Christ more. 
And as he has revealed himself to us in his word, let us take advantage of that. Remove the distractions from our minds. Lord, we, we do come with different things on our minds and worried about things happening later today or later this week. Lord, we want to take this time to devote our attention to you and to devote ourselves entirely to you, our minds, our hearts, that we would hear from you, that you would speak to us and we would be ready to listen and respond. So Lord, may you be glorified and may everyone here be edified. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Read with me, Luke 24, verses one through 35. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with, whom, uh, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. And went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. This is God's holy word. This last chapter of the Gospel of Luke is one of the most important passages of the New Testament. It is here that Jesus confirms the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament, and in fact, all of the scriptures, that they are to point to him. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They speak of Christ. That's how we are to read God's word. We are to read it in order to be pointed to Christ. If the Old Testament does not in some way point to Christ, then you can know for certain that you're reading it wrong, that you've missed something. And so these disciples, they had read their Bibles wrong. It's evident. They, like most of Jesus' disciples, were confused about the Savior who was to come and rescue them. That doesn't mean they got everything wrong about who Christ was. We know they were faithful to him. As the Spirit comes at Pentecost, they remain faithful to him other than Judas. But they were confused about this, about his purpose in coming. And it wasn't until Jesus accurately taught them the scriptures that their eyes were opened. He, He taught them from the scriptures, and then he breaks bread with them, reminding them of how he had just instituted the Lord's Supper days earlier. And their eyes were opened, it said. They were able to rightly see him. So all of us, all of us begin with the same problem. And we need eyes to see, we need ears to hear, we need hearts to believe because we don't have them apart from God's work. Without them, we cannot know Christ. Apart from a right understanding of Christ, we cannot know God. And if we do not know God, then we have no hope beyond this brief life. But here's the point of this passage. The returning king taught everyone with eyes to see where he could always be found. And so before we can hear the solution, we have to begin with that, our problem of unbelief. The problem of unbelief, that's the first point in your outline there from verses 13 through 24. I'm not going to reread this whole section, but I just want to point out a couple of verses from that passage, from that section regarding our unbelief. These two disciples had a distorted view of the person, of the purpose, and of the power of Jesus Christ. First of all, the distorted view of the person of Christ. They did not recognize Jesus. In fact, they were kept from recognizing him. Of all people, these two disciples would not have been apprehensive to believe. They wanted to believe. 
The reason they don't is because God had not given them this ability. They, hadn't, they, they were prevented from seeing Jesus. They were prevented from recognizing him. And it wasn't because Jesus looked different. At least the text doesn't tell us that. Because they immediately recognize him after they take the bread. But God had not given them eyes to see him for who he was. And so they were confused about the person of Christ. They had also a distorted view of the purpose of Christ, and we've already mentioned that a few times, right? They anticipated a very temporal, a physical redemption rather than eternal spiritual redemption that Christ brought. They fully expected the Messiah to overthrow the Roman authorities, to take over Caesar's throne, and to establish an earthly reign right then and there. That's what they were expecting to take place. They didn't realize that Christ's purpose was much greater. He hadn't come to merely rescue a small nation in a particular part of the world. He had come to rescue people from every nation so that no tribe, no people, or language would be overlooked. So they had a distorted view of the person of Christ, a distorted view of the purpose of Christ, and then ultimately, very obviously, a distorted view of the power of Christ. They didn't believe the reports of the resurrection. Even after they heard the, the women telling them this good news that Jesus had told them to expect to come, they still didn't get it. They were confused. They were sad. They were in sorrow. If they had believed it, obviously they wouldn't be leaving Jerusalem as they were. They wouldn't be walking to, to Emmaus seven uh, seven miles away from Jerusalem. They would have been waiting for his return. And so since the fall, when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, our vision has been distorted. We have the same problem that these disciples had. What we see is no longer accurate or true. Everywhere we look, it's as if we're peering through fog. We're blinded by the fog, in fact. The scripture would say, all of us are born spiritually blind. And so in all likelihood, these disciples had heard a lot of Bible stories. And they grew up hearing them every Sabbath, sitting under the rabbi. It isn't enough to simply read the Bible. You must read it with eyes that have been opened by God to see the truth. All of us begin with that distorted view of God, and unless the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to see the truth, we will not understand the Bible. We will be just like the disciples here, unable to recognize Christ, unable to appreciate the significance of his life and death and his resurrection. So the problem of unbelief is, is that it distorts our view of Christ. Our only hope is to rightly understand the solution of Christ. And that's the next point, the solution of Christ. Verses 25 through 27, look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, we don't like to think of Jesus as, as being in any way critical. We want to think of Jesus as just coming alongside everyone and, and being comforting and, and giving them nice words of encouragement, building them up. But what is he doing here? 
He's criticizing them. The first thing Jesus does is he says, Oh, foolish ones. After listening to their understanding, after listening to how, how wrong they were in getting who Christ was and who this was that they were talking to, he says, oh, foolish ones. Now, I'm not thinking that he's like screaming at them, you fools, that he's just bearing down upon them with, you know, both barrels. No, but he isn't being lighthearted or frivolous. He's, he's capturing their attention. How could you be so foolish? Have you not listened to what I've been saying these past three years? Have you not understood why I even died on the cross? What, what are you not understanding? He's critical of them. And it was a serious mistake of them, for them to make, and so it had to be corrected. And that's what you get in the next verse, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus corrects his disciples with a question. So he criticizes them, and then he gives them a correction. They thought Jesus was going to overthrow the political system and to sit upon an earthly throne immediately without any suffering, without any trial. They expected Jesus to confront the Roman authorities, not the Jewish authorities, as he did over and over again. He targeted the religious leaders, and he criticized them, and he corrects them, even as he's doing here for the disciples. This is a pattern when people encounter Christ, when people encounter Jesus. They're first of all confronted with their own problem. They first of all have to see their own problem of unbelief, that they need to be critical about their own understanding. They need to adopt what Jesus is saying. And then lastly, it involves Christ. So the solution of Christ involves criticism, it involves correction, and it involves Christ himself. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the one sermon of all the sermons that I've missed in my life that I want to go back and hit replay when I get to heaven. I want to hear it. I want to know where Jesus points to himself through all the scriptures. This would have been several hours of preaching, seven-mile seven journey. I'm sure they're not speed walking, right? They're taking their time here, and Jesus is preaching to them all along the way, pointing out in all of the scriptures. So he's probably started in Genesis. He's working his way through the Pentateuch and then pointing out in the Psalms all the references to him, getting to the prophets. He's, he's giving them the most amazing sermon that they could have ever heard. Where did he go? What passages did he refer to? How did he point them to himself? The fact that the words of this sermon were not recorded, the fact that we don't have even a a passage from this sermon, we don't even have a, a, a little bit of a snippet from the sermon, it should compel us to search for Christ every time we open his word, every time we open the Bible. No matter where you find yourself, in Psalm 136, where's Christ? Second Chronicles 36, Christ is there. You can open your Bible and you can find Christ. Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice. J.C. Ryle 
says this, Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice ordained in the law of Moses. Christ was the true deliverer and king of whom all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history were types. Christ was the coming prophet greater than Moses, whose glorious advent filled the pages of the prophets. Christ was the true seed of the woman who was to bruise the serpent's head, the true seed in whom all nations were to be blessed, the true Shiloh to whom the people were to be gathered, the true lamb to which every daily offering pointed, the true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure." So yes, you can find Christ on the pages of the Old Testament. It points to him. Christ's preaching in this passage stands in stark contrast to some of the prominent preachers that you might find on television today. Maybe one of the more prominent ones would be someone like Joel Osteen, who I've heard in an interview characterize himself as a motivational speaker more than a pastor. So he'll say, you won't hear him talk about sin or the wrath of God or judgment. He avoids all of these things because they're too negative. He wants to motivate. He doesn't want to discourage. The exact opposite of what Christ is doing here. Where there is no criticism, where there is no correction, there can be no Christ. So it is a humbling thing to come to Christ. We have to recognize that our first problem is ourselves. It's not that you have to live a certain way in order to come to Jesus. No, come as you are. But once you're there, you better recognize that it's you that has to change. It's not him. And when you come to Jesus, he replaces everything else. He becomes the priority. Scripture changes our faulty view of ourselves. Again, your biggest problem isn't your circumstances, as great as those are. Your biggest problem isn't someone else, as challenging as that can be. Your biggest problem is you. That's hard to hear. That's not something you hear very often. But your desires, your thoughts, your actions are filled with impurities. And that means that you do not have peace with God if you remain in that state. Scripture is not full of uplifting sayings that you repeat to yourself like Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. People like me. Scripture doesn't teach how to have your best life now. If your Bible doesn't give you a critical assessment of human nature and a critical assessment of yourself, then you aren't reading it correctly. If you read read your Bible to be cheered on, to be lifted up, you will be frequently disappointed or you'll be handpicking, right? You'll be skipping over a lot of passages. Scripture reshapes our view of reality just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had to view their world in a new light. We too must undergo that kind of paradigm shift in our worldview. When we read the Bible, we should anticipate being corrected. We should anticipate it correcting us in some way because we remain affected by the fall. We still have that distorted view. All Scripture points us to Christ. Scripture is not rightly interpreted 
if it does not teach us something about Christ. Each time you read the Bible in spirit and truth, you are drawing near to a person. You're learning more about your Savior. Sometimes you will learn about who he is. Sometimes you'll learn about what he's done. But you should always come away with a better understanding of Christ. You should recognize that he is the solution and he's always found in his word. And so that leads us to our final point and how we can read the word and find Christ. It's the response of faith. Verses 28 through 35. Notice verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. How were their eyes opened? It wasn't because all of a sudden they used their fingers to prop open their eyes and now they're opened and they could see Jesus finally or that they took off their sunglasses. After hearing scripture rightly taught, after breaking bread with their Lord, their eyes were opened. Salvation is the work of a sovereign God who opens blind eyes. And you do not Come to Jesus unless he draws you to himself, unless he opens your eyes to see his beauty. So he must give you the ability to believe the truth of his word, or you will continue to reject him. You will continue to walk in with that distorted view. And every time you hear the gospel, it'll just go in one ear and out the other. But notice what happens to these disciples in verse 32. After their eyes were opened, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Faith is experiential. Faith is something that these disciples experienced. They understood that they were believing. Their hearts were burning within them. They didn't have the full comprehension at that point, but they were beginning to be stirred up. Their faith was beginning to be stirred up within them. And then when they broke bread, their eyes were opened and they looked back and they said, God was doing a work in our hearts as he was preaching. Did you feel that? Did you, did you recognize that? They were amazed by that experience. Faith is experiential and then also it's communal. They returned immediately to the disciples. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and they returned. So they returned to the disciples and they shared their testimony with them. And they became, or, or that's even more significant when you recognize that they, it was during the same hour, which would have been after it was already dark. They take this seven mile journey back because they can't contain themselves. They can't just remain there in Emmaus. They have to return to the disciples. Let them know that it's true that they've seen him themselves. They would have probably met back up with the disciples very late into the night, possibly even early the next morning in the hours of the day. So you can sense the excitement and the urgency to rejoice with the other disciples. Uh, Many of you will know who Helen Keller was. She was born healthy, but at 19 months, she became ill. Uh, They think maybe she had scarlet fever. But during her illness, she lost the ability to both see and hear. And so she began to communicate with her family using about 50 signs. She had 
50 signs to, do, to communicate everything that she could possibly say. And at the age of six, the family hired Ann Sullivan, who was also visually impaired, to be Keller's instructor. So the first thing that she taught her was how to spell words. She gave her a doll, and she held doll, and then she put her hands in, inside Helen's hands and spelled it out, D-O-L-L. And then Keller didn't realize that, that a different word was used to identify each object. And so after a month of frustration, Keller has a, a breakthrough. Sullivan held Keller's hand under running water, spelling W-A-T-E-R, and it finally made sense to Keller. And so she immediately ran from object to object. All the things that she had been holding previously that, that Anne had been putting in her hand and spelling out the words... She went from object to object. What is this? What is this? She's touching a tree. What is this? And, and letting her teach her. It's like her, her eyes were opened in that sense. She had this entirely different understanding of the world. She could actually understand all of the, thing, the things that she felt in life. She understood her, her world in an entirely new way. And so I don't, I don't know how that worked in her mind. One moment, it's obvious that she was confused and frustrated, and the next moment, it all made sense. But that's what faith looks like. Once you've seen Christ, there's this earnest desire for more of him. Show me Christ from every angle imaginable. You can open the word anywhere, and you want to find him there. When our distorted vision is repaired, we can't help but become enamored with the things that delight God. We seek to know him and to see him clearly. And Christ's beauty is infinite, so we, we never come to an end of our growing in him. We never become bored with Christ. Over, we're not pursuing him. That's the, only, that's the only reason you would become bored in your faith. You would become indifferent towards God. It's because he's not the priority that you're pursuing. Because there's enough facets to the person and work of Christ that we can study it for all eternity, and we will. So have you experienced faith like that? Have you ever felt like a, a preacher was, was speaking to you exactly what you needed to hear? It's like everyone else in the room have disappeared. It's just you and God's word. You stop daydreaming and you're engaged like never before. When the Holy Spirit grabs your attention like that, everything else fades away and you can't ignore him. These disciples wanted nothing else. Their hearts burned for more of Christ. They begged him to remain with them. Look again at verse 29. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. They're, they're begging him, don't leave us. We want to hear more. We want to know more. 
Can you remember the last time that you felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? Can you remember the last time the word of God was a delight to your soul? Jesus is ready to receive you. The Holy Spirit can lead you to him when you open his word in faith. But I want to close with this idea of faith being communal because I think it's also an important component of this. Faith is experiential. Faith is also communal. It leads you into fellowship, not isolation. I know church can be frustrating. I know people in the church can be frustrating. Maybe you've been burned many times by the church maybe even by the pastor, maybe by me. I'll be the first to admit that the church is full of sinners who can be judgmental and negative, but you will never find the perfect church. The church has always struggled to be faithful, and it will continue to struggle in that way. We've we've been reading about the church and their struggles in Revelation. You can read any of the epistles and see the problems that the early church faced. And they were, many of them were eyewitnesses to the life of Christ. The church has always struggled to be faithful, but she is still the bride of Christ. And as often as she turns away from him, he will never abandon her, and so neither can we. And Church is necessary for your spiritual growth. The degree that you decide to isolate yourself from the Christian community is the degree that you will stunt your growth in Christ. I believe they're intricately related. So you really, when you find Christ, you you must find a a community to have more of him, to, to, to hear more from him sit under the preaching of his word regularly, opening it in your home, privately as well as with your family. Because just like Helen Keller, we we can't get enough. We want more of Christ. And so let us put him back in the center of our lives and let us look to him. Let us respond to him in the only way that we can truly see him with eyes of faith that he has blessed us with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of your word. Every jot and tittle of your word is inspired. We, we thank you for giving it to us, for allowing us to see Christ each time we open it, that we can be pointed to our Lord and Savior, and we can be changed by the gospel. Lord, it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. So give us the gift of repentance and faith. Cause us to respond even now in, in song and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. May we truly commune with you, our King. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.